When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Only Stupid Answers. My name is DJ Wildridge. This is the podcast where we like to talk about movies, TV shows, comic books, uh, Bigfoot, aliens, whatever we want to talk about, we talk about on the show. And with me today, I have an amazing guest, Mr. Mark Russell. Mark, say hi to the Hello. kids at home. Hello, kids at home. How are you doing? For those that might not, I mean, we've talked about your comics on the show a bunch, but for those that don't know, who are you? What do they do? What do you do? Where can people find you? Oh, I think that they might know me best from uh, my my work at the Hanna Barbera comics. I, the guy who wrote the, the Sad Flintstones comic. Uh, I also wrote the the Snagglepuss comic, where he is a, a closeted gay playwright in the nineteen fifties New York, and uh, also got um, got was fe- as featured on Fox News for a comic I did called Second Coming. Well, we'll talk about Not that. In a positive light, but um, but nonetheless featured. Uh, and uh, most recently, I've been working on Billionaire Island with Steve Pugh, who was also the artist on the Flintstones. Uh, I got to tell you, those Hanna-Barbera books uh, were way better than they had any right to be. Well, thank you. I, I don't know. I don't know how the rights and privileges work on those things, but uh, I'm glad you liked it. Well, it's just one of the whole concept of like what you were doing with Flintstones. And then they also some of the crossovers like Tom King's Elmer Fudd, Elmer Fudd Batman crossover. It's just it was really it was a really impressive reimagining of uh, that brand. Well, one thing that I think is valuable about doing that sort of thing, and I and I think DC's gotten away with it because you know the, the I think their their question and rightly so is why the hell are we bothering with you know Anna Barbera or other brands yeah. when we should be focusing on like Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman. But uh, but I think the value of bringing in sort of like outside branding like that characters that are not maybe necessarily part of the dc universe is it forces you to think outside the tropes you're used to mm-hmm. it forces you to think like in terms of stories of characters that you normally wouldn't think of and also forces you to try different flavors of ice cream it's like yeah. you know yeah. you know it's easy to become like a a store that features you know ice cream shop that features like 13 variations of chocolate like we only serve uh fruit flavored ice cream here but when you take on like Hanna Barbera or something like that, it forces you to sort of like expand your flavor base a little bit. So I think I think it was a, it was, it was the reason why that that was successful was largely because you're you're taking writers and forcing them to like think in new ways, forcing them to think about new characters they haven't really thought about, and, and you know this sort of virgin territory where you can just sort of like create something new without having to worry about you know dropping the crown jewels on the floor yeah so when it comes to uh a lot of those books um was it like ooh, i want flintstones and saddlepuss or was it more that they came to you with these with these properties and you're like i think i gotta take on that yeah more the latter what really kind of happened was um i'd done a comic for dc called prez and mm-hmm. uh, it got canceled uh but they liked it apparently well enough they're willing to take another chance with me so uh, right about that time, they got the Hanna-Barbera stuff and uh, Dan DiDio, who was, you know, in, uh, in charge of publishing at the time, uh, said, oh, I think you'd be great for the Flintstones. And I, I told him, I was like, you know, well, to be honest, you know, I, I don't really like the Flintstones. I, I didn't really, I really enjoy the 
cartoon. And he said, oh, you sound perfect. Uh, you, you won't be too uh, reverential and you'll, you'll have a unique take. And, and that was, and that was how I got the Flintstones. And the same sort of story with Snagglepuss. I wasn't intending to do a Snagglepuss comic, but I was writing on my Facebook, just these imaginary conversations between Snagglepuss and Huckleberry Hound yeah. as if they were sort of Southern Gothic writers, you know, like Tennessee Williams and uh, like Flannery O'Connor. And, uh, and my editor, Marie Javens was reading my little conversation, these little fake Snagglepuss conversations I was writing on uh, on Facebook, and she just wrote me to say, "Oh, by the way, your your pitch for the uh, Snagglepuss comic has been approved." And I, I said, "What pitch?" <laughs> and it just turned out they 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 liked the conversations and thought that should be a they should do a whole comic of those. That's amazing. I, I love it. I love it. So when things like that could happen to you in comics, I'm not sure it's like that anymore. Yeah, it's um. It's a little bit uh, uh, strange right now in in every industry, I think, uh, to be fair. But yeah, especially especially right. in comics. But before we dive into more of that stuff, we have a segment that we like to do at the top of every episode where um, we talk about what we're into this week. Is there a movie or a TV show or a comic or whatever that you've been enjoying that you'd like to share with the class today? Yeah, yeah there's a couple things, actually. Um I've been watching uh, Raised by Wolves on HBO Max, which is just excellent. It's it's about you know these these this pair of, these pair of androids that are raising kids, trying to basically reboot the human race because the Earth has been been basically destroyed. So they're trying to reboot the human race with these embryos and that turn into children that turn into a, a presumably adults at some point on a new planet. But their plans are complicated when survivors from another faction also land on the planet. And it's really sort of a um, a grand mythological retelling of like the story of Adam and Eve mm. and the and where human humanity really can't be rebooted because it's um, its flaws are inherent in the system. Uh, so it's it's really sort of a, it, it it's I don't want, I mean, I'm probably making it sound really boring, but it's actually really um, thoughtful yet entertaining show i'm looking forward to um checking it out because uh, i i've been waiting to watch it with my wife because i think she might be into it as well and so that's been one that's kind of been like uh in stasis until we're, our schedules are able to align more yeah. but luckily uh, you can you can binge it because they're releasing like two episodes a week so there's like nine out right now so uh do you have any idea how many total it's going to be like 10 13 i have no idea <laughs> I have no idea when it's going to end. Yeah, I'm looking forward to because right. I obviously I like Ridley Scott. I like the concept. Uh, our I had a guest on last week, Lon Harris. We were talking about Twin Peaks, um, but we were talking about this as well because he was checking it out. And the idea of like the humans make the androids, so the androids are trying to make better humans, but they're made by humans. And this kind of like Ouroboros right. of how do you make a better right, person? Exactly. It's it's that. It's, it's like when they say, well, you know, the algorithms will improve police work and, you know, we'll have like, you know, the algorithms will solve everything. But the algorithms are written by people with biases, you know, mm-hmm. so it's really just sort of probably going to immortalize these sort of human biases we have. Yeah. Um, so and then I think that's kind of the, a similar thing at work that we're like the, the basic flaw in human in humanity that was present at the Garden of Eden is going to be present in any garden you care to to go to. Yeah. It's going to follow us. Um, um, it's, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's also kind of an alternate history of the world. Cause it's one where like Mithraism 
which was basically worship of the uh, the sun and um, as a god, like where that kind of became the dominant religion on Earth. And so there's two factions. There's the Mithraists who believe in Saul, the sun god, and are trying to like purify the the world of non-believers. Then there's like the sort of atheist faction that's like, no, we need to start over again without it. And these these myths are corrupting us, and we need to start over again without them. So it really is kind of interesting commentary on on religious faith and fundamentalism yeah. um, as well. It's smart to like distant to with the Mithraism. It's smart to like, it's a good way to um, uh, right. compliment on re- religion as an institution without necessarily specifically getting in the weeds with specific groups. Yeah. I think this is what probably what good science fiction does that allow, allows you to talk about people without making them defensive mm-hmm. because you're putting you're, it's not you, it's somebody on another planet. It's not, you know, Christians or Muslims or Jews, it's, you know, Mithraists. It's about letting, giving people the chance to sort of step back from their current situation and examine themselves maybe more thoughtfully than they would because it's not really them. It's mm-hmm. this abstraction of them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, talking about the uh, algorithm a little bit, like even when you talk about your facial recognition, like mysteriously facial recognition has more issues with darker skinned people. And it's like, well, that that yeah. can't be an accident. Yeah, the, the, like, what are you the, talking about? I used to really look forward to like the bias-free policing of the future with you know done by algorithms. And now I realize the algorithms and the automated policing will probably just uh, eternalize these biases forever yeah. and make them more self-fulfilling because you know if they the they start or you know making arrests or you know um, enforcing law based upon these these biased, flawed algorithms then the new data is going to reinforce those algorithms and push them further towards those biases. Mm-hmm. So in a way it's, I was, there's one thing in the future I was looking forward to and now I can't look forward to it anymore. Well, hopefully I'm hoping uh, in our conversation, we can c- kind of find a more, a more hopeful place near the end. Cause I, I'm in, I'm in a similar yeah. boat, but speaking of um, science fiction and the way it's able to reflect people without making them defensive. The thing I'm into this week is a show on HBO Max, also on HBO Max called infinity train um, that my co-host Sam Basher turned me huh. on to. Um, it's, uh, it's got three seasons. I think it's 10 episodes a piece and they're like 15 minutes a piece. Um, it is, it, it is ostensibly, um, a kid show, um, but it deals, it, it, it kind of is that perfect all ages stuff where it deals with heavier issues in a way that is accessible for everybody. So, um, the, the basic premise is that people will find themselves mysteriously sucked into what appears to be a never ending train on another world, but each train car is almost, it's its own little pocket dimension with its own inhabitants and its own rules. And, uh, eventually in the first season, what we discover is that the train's purpose is to make people better, help them unpack their issues and become better people. And so, and in some ways it's a distillation of genre storytelling down to its core. You're going to go on this zany adventure and it's going to make you a better person. Like that's the premise of the show. What's interesting is as each season each season becomes more complicated to the point that in each season it's it's a we follow a different protagonist and a third season we follow protagonists that through general misunderstanding don't believe 
that betterment is the purpose of the car. And so they kind of treat it as their own playground. Um, and they don't treat the people that live on the, the, the zany denizens. Like you've got like on one train car, the people might be turtles or they might be crystal entities. They don't view them as living things. They view them as basically talking about the algorithm, like algorithms there that are, are basically for them to do whatever they want. And so the, it deals a lot with empathy and um, how people can circumvent uh, empathy or viewing other people as people. And like a lot of genre storytelling, it's it's kind of generalized enough that it's like, this could be an allegory for trolls on the internet or terrorists. Like it's this this dehumanization of people that aren't like you and kind of deprogramming that, programming that out of a person and somebody learning maybe the things that um, make them insecure enough to not view these people as people and learning to kind of fix their mistakes. And for something that it's like you're going in, it's like, hey, this is kind of a kid's show. It, it becomes really like rich and complex and interesting. And I highly recommend it for anybody that's got HBO Max. No, it sounds fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it ended up being really ah, impressive. It's and a great it's, recommendation. Yeah, and it's cool to see something, whenever something, again, like the, the genre storytelling just down, straight down to like its most minimal bits um and again it's easy to Mm -hmm. it's easy to consume so let's talk about off that that's what we're into this week if anybody watching live you want to let us know in the chat what you're watching i'd love to know um but i'm gonna add it to my list please do super easy to get through yeah you can get through it in like an afternoon uh i don't do that i don't like to binge stuff i like to watch stuff like yeah like I'll watch like an episode a day kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm like that too. I feel like it's sort of like eating a whole bag of cookies. It's like you diminishing returns kicks in. You, you lose the flavor of the cookies after, but I like to watch one or two at a time. Well, it's interesting because but as we were just starting the show, um, uh, and it was working at SourceFed, we did a lot of like Netflix was doing the Marvel series and they dropped the whole thing. And so on a lark, the, my co-host and I decided to watch, um, the full first season, it became a thing we did that eventually evolved into to what the show is now. Uh, and it's just, you end up like you're talking about, it and you're like, I, you know, you don't, you don't talk about it as like episode to episode. It just kind of becomes this, this thing. Right, gelatinous. Yeah. Yeah. Blob of a narrative. Yeah. And so it's like the, the specificity of it, you kind of miss out on. So I like, I, I like watching stuff week to week. Um, and especially, and I think it, it pushes creators to think about, well, you know, you know, with writing comics, the idea of, I'm sure something you think about is it's going to be another month till somebody gets a next, the next installment. So you want it to be rich enough that like, it feels like a complete meal. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that method of storytelling. There's people who, uh, you know, think, well, if you, all you have to do really is to like leave them with a cliffhanger or something at the end of a comic and that'll keep coming back for the next, I I really sort of disagree with that philosophy because uh, one, I think that people, especially since there's a month between issues, usually people don't remember the intricacies of the plot from month to month so much as they remember the way you made them feel Uh, like the feeling they had when they they read the last one. That's what you want them to carry. I think it makes more sense just from purely mercenary standpoint, if not from a storytelling standpoint, to, to have like good a good resolution in within an issue or at least to like leave them at a place where they you know you've hit them with your best shot and then they have to absorb that and think about it for like the next month until the next one comes out as opposed to 
you know, treading water for 18 pages. And the last two pages, there's a stunning cliffhanger and everything they thought they knew was wrong. And now they got to wait a month to figure because most people aren't, you know, they're going to lose track of what that cliffhanger was or where, you know, until the next month. So mm-hmm. um, better just to write satisfying stories. When in doubt, just write a good story. It seems simple, but, you know, like a lot of things, it's. Uh, yeah, it's like telling someone, I'll write a hit song. But what you need to do to be successful in music is to write a hit song. Listen, all you need to do to be rich is start out with money and then you're good yeah. and then you're good to go. <laughs> so speaking of that metaphor, uh, let's talk about Billionaire Island because issue six just dropped um, uh, a couple weeks back. Uh, I just finished reading it. Um, I, I love the series, uh, although it did hurt my heart a little bit at times because it has become increasing reading, reading it has become increasingly closer to home unsettlingly. So tell yeah. a little bit about for, for, uh, the audience that hasn't necessarily read Billionaire Island, um, what is it? And also, when did you start it? Because I imagine, we talked a little bit about this off air. I imagine when you started it, if, and as the world has progressed, you're like, wait, am I predicting the future? <laughs> well, unfortunately, you know, um, I, I, don't, I don't really believe I have any oracular powers. I think I just sort of like complain about the world and, um, and I'm never disappointed in my complaints, you know, it's, it's like as bad as I'm go- as it is, and it will wait around, it will get worse. Um, but yeah, I wrote it all like pretty much in 2019. Uh, and it's about, you know, these billionaires who decide to wait out the end of the world on a private island that they've created in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and, but, but ironically, the uh, publication of the comic was interrupted by, you know, the actual end of the world. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, there was like a six month gap between the first one coming out in March, I guess not six months, three month gap between the first one coming out in March and the second issue coming out in June. So uh, because of COVID, yeah. and the, the world's shutting down. Uh, so it was a little weird. And, and there is like a sort of a pandemic uh, storyline in the, uh, in the comic, which, uh, feels a little prophetic in uh, retrospect, but it really shouldn't be because we've known that there's going to be a pandemic. All the experts have been saying we're going to be hit with a major pandemic that we are overdue. So it really shouldn't have been a surprise to anyone. The only surprise is like exactly when. So, mm-hmm. so uh, I don't, I don't feel it was prophetic. I just feel like it was like uh, on target pessimism. Yeah. I think that's a good way to describe a lot of your work maybe, but especially billionaire Island. So reading the last issue, light spoilers for those that haven't read it. I do highly recommend it. Uh, do you know when the trades coming out for people to pick up? Uh, November, November. Uh, I don't know. I think, uh, November 9th, if I remember right. Yeah. Okay. I think it's November 9th. So if, if you haven't picked up the single issues, I highly recommend the trade. It's a great book. Light spoilers in, in the final issue. Um, we get, um, there's there's a bit you talked about the the pandemic there's also some some uh what's the way to describe it some genetic engineering with the food that it sterilizes people and this news uh, gets out and it looks like it's the end for these billionaires on billionaire island and then they successfully mobilize um people to start buying this food that they know will sterilize them (laughs) And it makes me think about like um, during this time, my wife and I watched watched Mrs. America, which dramatized Phyllis Schlafly and her efforts uh, as a woman. She mobilized a group of women to fight against women, their own rights. Um, And watching the news and everything like 
you know, Trump talking about like he's not necessarily willing to um, consent to a peaceful transition of power. And it's like the peace he's talking about is all of our peace. Is that's that's our peace. He's he's not he's not just threatening like Biden. He's us directly. So right. I, I want to talk with you a little bit about this idea of people kind of mobilizing against their own self-interest. Because it's something I've been trying to wrap my head around. Because one thing you think you could rely on people to do effectively is focus on their own benefit. Right? Right. And it's something they did for a long time. Like, uh, they, you know, people tended to vote their own interests. Like, after World War One, when people were sick of, like, going on foreign adventures or, you know, like trying to fix the world with the League of Nations. It's like the Republicans won, you know, every election in the 1920s because they're like, no, no, we're going to focus on making money here at home. We're going to, you know, you, you're going to be, be opening your businesses and getting jobs. And that worked, that rhetoric worked in the 1920s until, you know, 1929 and the stock market crash, which was largely enabled by their policies. And then the pendulum swung back to the Democrats who were like, no, we're going to make sure everyone's, everyone, you know, gets taken care of. We're going to make sure you have a, you know, a social security fund, we're going to, you know, have this new deal and do all these public works projects uh, so we can put America back to work. And then everyone voted for that because, you know, it, it was in their economic interest. And this yeah. was like created a huge problems for the Republicans because that became the norm for the next 30, you know, 30 some odd years. And they're like, how do we, how do we get people to vote against their own pensions to get them to vote against like their education get them against to vote against like, you know, high paying jobs. And what they stumbled upon was that the one thing that people matters more to people than their economic interests is their identity. Mm. So like in Nixon's Southern strategy, he ran on like, you know, it's like, like basically hippies and black people. It's like, you, you don't want to be like those hippies, do you? Mm. Uh, then you, so you should vote for us because we will, we'll crack the whip on those hippies or we'll start putting you know, we'll, we'll put the cork on this civil rights thing that's gotten out of hand, you know, over the last 10 years. And that really appealed to white Southern voters and the white Southern voters en masse, like sort of switched or began switching from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, even though the Democratic Party represented their 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 economic interests. The, the Republican Party started representing more of their identity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's still a division mm-hmm. in politics we've seen today where people are still ready to vote against their own interests if it uh, if if they feel like they're voting for their own identity. And I think in this election on both sides, what you see is people really cleaving to their identities. And it's, it's, there's, there's not much talk about like uh, people's economic self-interest. Most of the campaign is about like, well, whose side are you on? Which, what, you know, what are you, you know, what, what is your, what is your identity? And I think that's the, it's sort of um, allowed uh, corporations and corrupt politicians to get away with basically stealing the country out from underneath us. Yeah. The fact that people largely don't vote on their own interests, they vote because they want to identify with the, the, the person who's lying to them. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's exemplified in uh, Billionaire Island with uh, what is it, guy on motorcycle? Angry guy, some angry guy on a motorcycle. It was like, which is like literally the name of the pundit. And he's sort of <laughs> my take on all these like sort of like blue collar quote unquote, blue collar conspiracy theorists, guys like Alex Jones or, you know, guys you'd hear on AM radio or, um, or that run like, uh, like conspiracy theory, uh, YouTube channels and people just sort of like listen to him because he reminds them of themselves, yeah. even though what he's saying is like obviously garbage. And, and even, you know, when they, when they show like some angry guy on a motorcycle in his own house, he's like, even on, on his motorcycle, like even inside his house, 
uh, but his house is like this mansion. He's got like crystal chandeliers. He's yep. got really, there's nothing at all like the people he's talking to on over, you know, on his podcast. But he, uh, just because he looks and sort of gives off that vibe, he uh, sort of like signals to their identity. They trust him, even though he's like literally telling them to go out and sterilize themselves with this food. Is there, do you think, like a way to circumvent either either circumvent that or use that uh, that system of identity to it's so weird to be in my mind to be like wishing people would just focus on their own self-interest like you feel like you grow up you have to learn how to like care about other people but in this situation it's like literally if you just kind of took care of yourself here you'd be taking care of not everybody else but you'd be closer to that Right. And I think in a lot of ways, the, you know, especially in terms of like voting, uh, it, they're, they're kind of empathy and self-interest kind of are one and the same because you're, you're creating, you're voting for a society in which uh, things are, e- life is easier for normal people, mm-hmm. which, you know, assuming you're a normal person who are, you know, most of us are not billionaires. Most of us are not like outliers. Most of us are just people trying to, to make a living. Voting for your own interests and the things that are going to make it easier for you to live are is also an act of empathy because it is ma- it is also going to make life easier for those around you. Yeah. And I think what the uh, what people who what, what's really poisonous in the politics days that you see a lot of people who are are willing to vote against their own self interest, knowing they're voting against their own self interest, but doing so because they think it's going to make you know uh, the other side hurt even worse. And so what we've created when we do that is, a, you know, a race to the bottom, a race to a race to the worst policy positions possible. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really good way of describing that idea of focusing on on winning and what that which is which is kind of illusory. Like, it does, what is what does winning even mean? Like you said, when you're when you're racing to right. the bottom. Uh, yeah, winning in this case means that like you you're you're you burn down your garage, but in the process, burn down your neighbor's house. So yeah. it's like winning is like just taking less splash damage than you gave the other guy. It, it's it's nuts, and I yeah I, I I hope I hope we're at the bottom and we can start building our way back up. But uh, yeah. I, if, it's, if this is not the bottom, I hate to see what the bottom looks like. Amen to that. Uh, so again, I don't want to spoil Billionaire Island because like Wendy S in the chat is talking about how she collected all the issues because she wanted to read them all at once. So for people that that haven't read, I don't want to spoil it, but. Um, there is a kind of, I'll say a bittersweet ending. Uh, we talked a little bit about this before we went on the air, um, where you, uh, a lot of the book is about the fragility of the systems that these billionaires create and how in a way they're kind of hoisted by their own, uh, uh, um, uh, kind of like trip themselves up, um, uh, with these fragile systems is that our only hope? Like, is that when you when you're writing this book, it's like, well, I guess this is the only way things kind of work out. I don't think it's our only hope, but I think historically that's the way it's worked. It was like the people when the people who who write the rules of the economy uh, write them in such a way that they ultimately collapse even for themselves. That is historically when we've been we the the opportunity we've had to like rewrite the rules, mm-hmm. like the stock market crash in 1929. You know, and the, the billionaires who are investing on, in the margins and, you know, creating these enormous stock market bubbles uh, because it was in a short term interest when it collapsed and, you know, bankrupted them all. 
the created this, even though it like took a, a huge amount of collateral damage with them and put the whole country into like a decade long uh, depression, it was a rare chance for us to rewrite the rules a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that that's, so it's kind of like that. It's like, this, this is maybe what would give us, it's not that that's the only way, but this is maybe what it will take for us to be able to rewrite the rules. So we're talking about Billionaire Island, and we're going to be talking about Second Coming and Wonder Twins a little bit, too. Uh, I got a question here from a lot of your stuff is very topical. Um, I think it's safe to say. We got a question here from Danny M. What inspires your writing? Why do you what what do you think motivates you to kind of focus on these issues that are, are, are affecting us right now? Well, I think that, you know, there's there's a line I wrote in um, the Snagglepuss comic book, right? I say that art is how you tell the world how it's killing you. And I feel like that's what kind of what my writing is for me. It's me telling the world how it's killing me. And so I write about the things that I tend to worry about the most or the things that like sort of bother me uh, because it's this, it, the stuff that sort of occupies your brain, your subconscious uh, and won't let go of you is the stuff that you're usually going to be writing the best about. It's the stuff you're thinking the most about. It's the stuff you're going to have the most to say about. Uh, but hopefully you'll be able to make it entertaining for another human being. You know, <laughs> hopefully you'll, you'll be able to make it accessible or funny enough so that somebody else is going to like, uh, is, is, is going to in, enjoy the otherwise dark peek into the, the recesses of your pain. With that in mind, have you found it? Um, so for me, I've written, I, I've written a few comics. I, I, am working on, a, uh, writing my feature and all that stuff. Uh, written a few shorts. I have found that this time has actually been more productive for me, mostly out of catharsis. Like writing is my one way. Mm-hmm. Writing is my my one outlet to, I guess, either exert some sort of uh, control or also like a vent of, like you said, like the the things that are that are killing me. So for you, has this time been more or less productive? I think as a whole. Um... Well, it's it's kind of an unfair question because my productivity is, is usually tied to deadlines. Like I don't have a, a choice to be like unproductive. It's just not an option. But I but I feel like um, generally it's made me less productive. Mm. Um, I feel like it's it's there's so many things I have. To, one, I have to work at home now. I used to be able to go work at a coffee shop or go work at a library, which was nice because it was like I put away the things from home and I wasn't distracted and I'd just be able to focus. Yeah. And now I don't have that. Now I got now I work from home. So I'm, there's all these distractions around and also just the, what they call the allostatic load of like worrying about everything that's going on in the world just sort of wears you out yeah. and it, it, it keeps you from being able to focus. So I, yeah. I feel like even though maybe my page count is still the same as what it was before COVID and all this hit, I feel like it's it's harder. It takes more out of me to do it just because I feel like I'm dealing with a lot of other, a lot of other things at the same time. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, I would describe your work as very um, satirical. Uh, and I think satire is one of the more challenging modes to operate in when, you know, you're talking about like making stuff like funny or accessible um, when you're talking about these deeper stuff. What do you think that one, would you describe your work as satirical? And two, do you think there's like a trick or at least a trick for you in writing satire, good satire? Yeah, I, th- I think I describe it as satirical. Most of my, most of my work, not all, I'm not everything I've written has been satirical, but, but yeah, a lot of it definitely. Uh, and I, for me, I think the the trick is telling the truth in the, the, the shortest way possible. 
and that's what satire generally is. It's like just telling the, the, the truth as bluntly as you can. And that automatically sort of makes it funny mm-hmm. automatically. And I think also a lot of what bothers me about the world is just the sheer absurdity of what's happening. And it's like hard not to laugh at it. Yeah. I mean, it'd be easier to laugh at it if I was reading about this happening on some other planet or, or something uh, and not experiencing it myself. But, you know, a lot of it, and I think this is what, what Billionaire Island explores in the, there's like even a line, one of the characters, I don't, I'll never understand how a system so absurd can be so resilient. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's kind of what, you know, the whole series is about. And it's kind of what I write about. It's like, how, how can this, these institutions that, that have all this sort of like absurdity baked into them survive so well for so long? Yeah. It's, I, I've had some friends, uh, post stuff that are, is like, um, stuff that's supposed to be aspirational like you you can't kill an idea and it's like yeah but that applies to like bad ideas too like like, right yeah unfortunately yeah it's like you might as well say you can't kill a weed (laughs) yeah it's like it's it'll survive for better or worse it'll survive so you mentioned at the top um how you were uh on fox news about second coming and it it was not not personally i didn't do a personal appearance but they they talked about me in my absence yes uh that doesn't surprise me they didn't invite you to hear your perspective it's it's so weird um but uh it was it's interesting uh, love second coming as somebody who grew up in in the church it was interesting that the the it seems like the big backlash to your book was you had the audacity to depict D- jesus uh similar to the way the bible depicts him like <laughs> that was it's like what if you did a biblically accurate jesus yeah it, it, well not only that but the outrage was like before they'd even read the comic you know it was just the idea that this comic was coming out was enough to send like the uh the uh, professional outrage machine into motion. And uh, really, so I think to them, to the religious right particular, like really represent more, I think, kind of like a, a intellectual property theft. Mm-hmm. Like they thought, no, Jesus belongs to us. And, you know, the only these, these uh, interpretations are allowed and anybody, and nobody else is allowed to have an, uh, their own opinion. And it was the fact that I would even, not even knowing what I was saying, the fact that I would even, someone outside their bubble would, would dare offer an opinion was what they took offense at. It, yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, again, like I said, I grew up in the church and it was, it, it wasn't the most conservative. I mean, it was Baptist, it was Southern Baptist, it was pretty conservative, but it wasn't like, uh, I, I would say like things seem to be now, but in that environment, mm-hmm. I was, I, I had, I'd read the Bible cover to cover three, at least three times. And so within that context, re after all the controversy, reading the book, it's like, but this is, you're not, this is the dude, like this is, he's talking about, obviously the context is right. not the same, but the, the, uh, teachings are similar. And it's weird also to think like preacher exists, you know what I mean? And it, do, right. do you think the conversations have changed since something? Cause, cause preacher pushes the envelope significantly more than your book does. And it's, so it's, it's weird to see how the, those conversations have changed. What do you think? How do you think that happened? Well, I think the different times, I think one, we were less polarized as a society, as an American society back when, when preacher was coming out in comics and, and we weren't as polarized by identity. And so I think a lot of it, the, the uproar now is about like how, uh, because they see this not as a challenge to the Bible, but they see it as a challenge to their identity. Mm. They see it as a challenge to yeah. like 
especially like evangelical sort of right-wing Christians see that they, 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 they pretty much um, see themselves, I think falsely as being, you know, persecuted victims under, under siege at all times. And the fact that somebody would write a comic book about Jesus sharing an apartment with a superhero to, even though, though they had no idea what was actually in the comic book, just seemed to feed that narrative to them. So they, so they seized upon it. Uh, yeah. And it's, uh, Again, for the people that that don't know, like you said, the premise of Second Coming is, uh, I, I, and I thought just just reading the premise uh, premise I thought was hilarious to me. Um, God is a little bit disappointed with Jesus's first time around, and he looks at a what is essentially a Superman uh, an, uh, stand-in, and says, "Ooh, I wish you were more like that." And so he has Jesus go stay with him. Yeah. What surprised me reading your book, because I knew, you know, that basic premise and everything, and I knew kind of, I, I presume the kind of like exploration of the religious establishment. What surprised me more was how the book tackled violence in comics. Um, and I wonder twins kind of explored that as well. What are your thoughts on the way superhero comics use violence? And maybe especially now with all the stuff uh, with Black Lives Matter and all that stuff. Um, right. how violence in comics should evolve. Well, because, yeah, I think that, that um, what Second Coming is largely about is that, you know, most problems you're going to encounter in life can't be solved by, you know, drop kicking somebody or throwing somebody through a plate glass window. Most of them are going to can only be solved with like empathy or by, you know, helping each other, by doing things, by understanding and, and uh, these, these boring and, you know, more boring, very, not very cinematic ways in which we actually make life mutually better for, for each other, as opposed to like, you know, um, professional wrestling, you know, team ups and, uh, and villain smackdowns, which are sort of how we're programmed to think about the world through, through comics. I mean, even a a hero who's on the the side of right and justice still in comics is almost always going to be using violence as a means to achieve their goal. It's like, there's a, there's a part in the Wonder Twins comic where um, Zan goes, to go see this movie, uh, this movie called Gun Cop, which is about this a cop who just sort of shoots people, and um, and when he's asked to like summarize the movie later, he says, "Oh well, you know, things were things were kind of kind of sticky because the bad pe- bad guys were so good at murdering people, but the the good then it turned out the good guys were even better at murdering people, so it all worked out, which is sort of I think the the overall ideology of comic books is yeah. that like." Uh, good will ultimately be better at murdering people than evil, um, which is not really, you know, which creates its own sort of host of, so, host of problems rather than being a solution. And I think that we need to start programming ourselves away from thinking that the credits will roll once, you know, the bad guy gets punched, uh, that the actual change of our civilization and, and uh, growth and evolution towards something that will allow us to live past the 21st century is going to require more thought and, uh, and, and more, more solutions than just like punching somebody. And it's, it's really sort of a plea to look into the rest of the toolbox and find some solutions to help save this species from extinction, please. Uh, so with that in mind, what, what is the, I guess, cause you talk about it, not, not, it, it is cinematic to drop kick somebody through a window. So, oh yeah. And, and very satisfying. I would imagine. I mean, I, I can't argue with that. I mean, if, if I had to choose how to end watching and I would, yeah, let's drop kick somebody through a window. I don't want to see him, you know, like, like figure out like an eight point health plan to provide, you know, healthcare to like 
people with pre-existing conditions, but, but, but one's going to like actually benefit you a lot more than drop kicking somebody through a plate glass window. So when you think about like a character like Superman, right? Um, what, what are, what are ways that that character could be explored that, that maybe move him away you know, because you're not going to, like you're saying, like you're not going to pick up a Superman comic where he's coming up with an eight point plan to to solve healthcare. Right, exactly. But, but there's maybe like, somewhere in between him uh, punching Metallo in the, into the sun and that that helps evolve the people that read these books into thinking outside that box. Well, in the uh, second season of Second Coming, uh, there's actually like a scene where Sunstar decides to open up office hours. And he, he does it so he can take take suggestions from you. Well, you know, what should I be doing? Because, you know, the, the, you know, obviously, you know, just like 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 arresting purse snatchers and 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 beating up mob guys is like a waste of my time. Anybody could do that. Uh, so what should I be doing now that I have because I have this like super strength? And so he gets all these like suggestions, uh, some of which are even worse than what he was doing before. But, you know, things like, you know, well, you know, somewhere out there is an asteroid with the earth's name on it. You should probably just be like finding these asteroids and steering them out of the earth's path, saving us from one of those collisions will do more good than, you know, putting all the purse snatchers in the world in, in jail uh, or, you know, like uh, helping, you know, the helping the human race build like a space elevator to like make space flight cheaper. You know, there's all these little things that you, you could do with superpowers that are, are um, better for the human race and, and in a way is also sort of, satisfying from a story standpoint as like you know uh, pistol whipping a you know, mafia guy yeah yeah when is the um is there a release date plan for the second season of second coming yeah yeah um issue uh, number one of the second season comes out on december 16th great everybody stay tuned to your local comic shop uh do curbside pickup or wear a mask whatever whatever the safe yeah. way is to do it um, so let's uh, segue into Wonder Twins. Um, uh, one of the questions we got from STS 2884 is, how are you able to make the Wonder Twins less of a joke? And I'd like to retool that a little bit to ask, did, did you, going into it, did you kind of perceive the Wonder Twins as a joke? And did you see is that as kind of like a challenge you needed to overcome? Or did you see it differently? Yeah, I, I kind of walked into it seeing them as a joke, but, I, but it was a joke that I liked. Um, it was a joke about how they're sort of like, overlooked because their powers are kind of marginal and they are uh and they're also because they're the in in the super friends cartoons i grew up with they were always like the superheroes who are allowed to make mistakes they didn't have to be perfect like batman or superman because their screw-ups were often like what the story was about what their little story was about so i leaned into that like i wanted to make it more about them learning how to be superheroes and also kind of like them seeing the world from an outsider's perspective and seeing you know the hall of justice and all these things going on and wondering you know just sort of being confused by it because they're coming from a civilization that doesn't have the same issues that ours does Mm -hmm. and so them sort of like thinking in some ways that the uh the the hall of justice and uh, the, the Justice League have like a, actually a lot to learn from their world and what what they're doing, uh, as opposed to them just like learning how to be like a like a superhero, a street level superhero on Earth. Uh, but yeah, a lot of it is about them learning how to use their powers in sort of creative ways. And I think that you know if if they were sort of like all powerful like Superman or had these like or just had super strength, 
it, it wouldn't lend itself to sort of creative storytelling as much mm-hmm. as them having these really marginal superpowers, like being able to just turn into water or, you know, uh, or an animal. These are actually pretty cool superpowers if you use them creatively because, yeah. Um, yeah. because, you know, being, being able to turn in water means you could hide in like a, like a, like a, um, a, a drinking fountain or in like a bottle of water and then surprise your opponent. Or it means that you could like, as Zan does, just, go through molecule by molecule all the pipes in you know the city and like 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 find the person you're looking for uh by going through all the uh, grantedly not very probably not a very pleasant way to do it but by going through all the sewage pipes of, of every every house in the sewage city uh or like jaina can like is is more than just somebody who can just turn into like a gorilla or a bear she like can turn into a flying just like be in any room and like here over here any conversation um so they're really actually i think a part of the fun is coming is working with the challenge of like taking these marginal superpowers and making them kind of cool mm-hmm. i i like that too and also speaking of marginal i really liked your work taking uh or creating um these like i think it's you could call them like z-list uh super villains uh yeah. red flag was a particularly fu- funny one um, and of course, the scrambler who ends up being like a, a pretty consequential threat. Like he, he could well threat even threats not exactly the right term. He, he his abilities are wide wide ranging. Yeah, yeah. He uh, ends up like sort of like being the uh, could he has the the potential to be the most influential human being in human history because of his power to like scramble people's minds. And he and it was that that storyline of like the scrambler was kind of based on. John Rawls theory of justice, mm. which states that the way you come up with a just society is for everyone to make the rules, not knowing who they will be in that society. So if you have like, like if, if you're a billionaire, but you don't know if you're going to be a billionaire in this society you're creating, or if you're in poverty, but you don't know if you're going to be in poverty in the society creating, what are the rules you would agree to knowing that, that, you know, they were going to press a button and everyone was going to start over from zero again. You didn't know whether you're going to be rich or poor or, you know, uh, what, what ethnicity you're going to be. What are the rules you would, you would be willing to live under in that situation? And the scrambler by having the power of scrambling everybody on, on the planet's brain and, you know, putting them all into like different bodies at random, he forces the human race to sort of come up with the, the ideal society, one that doesn't discriminate, one that that takes care of people regardless who they are, because nobody knows who they're going to be in that society. You could mm-hmm. be the president of the United States one day and then wake up the next day and find yourself like a slave on a fishing boat, like cutting off heads all day in the Pacific Ocean. You know, so you have to think about how what kind of society you want to build for that person who's like stuck on the fishing boat and not just for yourself and your donors. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, the scrambler story, I mean, he, he was, he could have had the potential to be an incredibly influential figure because he had, he was the one guy who could force the world to come up with a system that worked for everybody. Yeah. And I, so obviously wonder comics and wonder twins are within the wider DC continuity. So there wasn't, I'm, I'm sure uh, the editors weren't like, yeah, the scrambler can scramble everybody. And that's just what we're doing now. Uh, was it, was there part of you that like, how, I guess the question is, how did you come up with like working your way out of the situation you'd set up in a way that you thought was, was satisfying? Cause I, I got to imagine there was part of you that just wanted to be like, this is the way it is now. 
Yeah. Yeah, you're right. The, the continuity pretty much required that I that he couldn't succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the I wanted at least people to. But it, to me, I wanted the, the way to get it back out of that was to sort of put people in the weird position of cheering for the failure of the scrambler, or or putting like them where they're watching people cheer the failure of the scrambler and and they the, the earth had actually done it that had come up with like the system that was going to work for everybody it was going to end slavery and inequality and and create a better society for everybody but then when they didn't have to go through with it they cheered and they threw the papers up in the air and everyone celebrated so i wanted the reader to be sort of like see that 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 is the real supervillain. the fact that nobody wants to change anything because there's you know all the people in power are perfectly happy with the situation as it is now and i, I wanted them to see that that's not not the scrambler, but that attitude is actually the villain. Yeah. And, it, and it goes back to what you were talking about, kind of uh, allowing the opportunity for um, a, a conflict and a conflict resolution that doesn't just involve uh, a scrambler or or the the president or whatever being drop kicked uh, out a window. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, it's like the most boring thing of all. It's like a, it's it, even like superhero movies that I like. I usually just sort of like zone out in the last twenty minutes because it's just this like long, never-ending CGI battle where they're basically just throwing each other into buildings or or punching you know somebody into the air, and then they come flying back and they punch you into the air, and it's just like no, there's no real consequence or danger. Whereas something where somebody is fundamentally going to change the way. Uh, civil, world civilization operates because they had this idea and they have a power that can force you to follow through with it. To me, that's dramatic. That's mm-hmm. like, this is like consequential, much more so than, you know, a couple of like guys who can't be hurt or killed punching each other for some unclear reason. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Wait, how did you get involved with um, Wonder Comics and Wonder Twins? It was it similar to the Hanna Barbera stuff where uh, your editor came to you and was like, "This is what we're doing," or did you have like, were you kind of like drawn to them at all? Uh, that one was uh, actually the work of uh, Brian Michael Bendis. Like he approached me and and, um, and asked me if I would be interested in writing the Wonder Twins. And I think when he approached me, it was almost sort of like you, like apologetically, he's like, "Hey, man, I, I really wanted." you to do this title for wonder comics and he's like just just hear me out but i i think he'd be good for uh wonder twins thinking i was just gonna be like you know insulted it was gonna be like fuck you man uh but i love the wonder twins so it was actually i didn't have to think about it i said yes on the spot i really like what wonder comics did and what what it represents because it it's one being i think it's important to have comics that are accessible to young people because that's how a lot of people that's how i got into comics it's and um so much of it is targeted towards people like me now uh 30 to 50 year old white men um that i like that that something like wonder comics not only exists in that it's something that you can give younger readers but specifically with wonder twins it's something that is is talking about stuff that in in a way that is accessible um that creates critical thinking because um critical thinking is vital um so i before we wrap up um do you have like with everything that's going on a lot of a lot of uh, our audience um obviously loves comics, but also tries to be creative themselves, um, have creative pursuits. Do you have advice for people that maybe want to get into comics or want to do anything creative? Yeah, I think that the advice is think about what matters most to you and write about it. Uh, think about the things that haunt you or the things that you can't stop thinking about. Don't try to write like a comic book story 
just try to write a story, write something that means something to you. And there'll be some way to like make it into a comic book. I think the mistake that a lot of people make is that they try to be some, become sort of like mercenaries. They try to like write like um, a passably good copy of like a Jeff Johns story or whereas, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll only ever be a, a second rate Jeff Johns, but they'll, they could always be a first rate, whoever they are, you know, so don't bother trying to like sort of mimic the, 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 the people you look up to, the people that you're, you, you um, are, are trying, they're using as your role models in comics, find out what it is that the frequency that you resonate on your radio frequency, that the, the things that you want to talk about, and then work that into your comic stories. Speaking of that, I meant to ask this at the at the top of the episode, but I guess now is as good a time as any. What was your journey into right? How did you end up writing comics? It was sort of a um, horizontal journey because I, I started out writing books, um, but I, I had a book published by a comic book company. Um, God is disappointed in you, which is my retelling of the Bible, uh, was published by Top Shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, so that got me into like going to the comic conventions and doing signings there. And, um, and then, um, there I met like, uh, Marie Javins at DC and when they had a, uh, when they were looking to reboot Prez, which was a, uh, a comic that ran for about four issues in 1973, uh, in thinking that, you know, it's 2015, they're thinking this is going to be relevant because we had an election coming up, uh, they're like, we want to do this sort of satirical, funny comic book, but who do we know that writes like that? And, Mar- and I just happened to know Marie because I, I'd written this book um, and uh, with a friend of hers, Shannon Wheeler did the, uh, the illustrations for the book. So uh, she thought of me and, and asked me if I'd want to write the comic. And I said, sure. And that was, so it really, I had no intention of getting into comics. It wasn't something I was always trying to break into. It sort of happened because I'd, I'd written a book that a comics editor thought had something of comics potential in it. And I think that that's, you know, another sort of piece of advice I can give to writers is just write, just keep putting things out in the universe because everything you publish, everything you put out is sort of a lottery ticket out in the universe. You never know who's going to scratch it off. You never know who's going to find it. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. So last thought, we've obviously talked a little bit about uh, a lot about some of the things, uh, some of the darker aspects of our culture right now uh, that your work touches on. Is there something that makes you hopeful for the future um, with everything that's happening? Is there something that you're like, that that makes it feel like, I, yeah, I guess just makes you hopeful? Yeah, there are a lot of things actually that make me hopeful. And one of the biggest things is like how we are, you know, starting to embrace each other's mutual humanity, like things like uh, the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and, you know, greater inclusivity that we're, it really is all because they're just kind of different words for the same thing, which is we're starting to like recognize each other as human beings, uh, which is what really gives me hope is that the fact that we are, you know, and I think it's also what's causing a lot of the backlash and sort of the further entrenchment into nationalism mm-hmm. and, you know, people retreating into their identities uh, as opposed to their interests. But to me, it's what also what, what gives us hope, the fact that it's a backlash to something really positive, which is people starting to realize that just because somebody else is suffering, just because it's not them, it's not okay that somebody else is suffering. It's not okay that somebody else is being bullied or dehumanized. So that gives, that's what gives me hope. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that and science gives me hope too. Science is good. Uh, kids, uh, listen to science, uh, wear your mask. 
wash your hands, stay six feet apart. Don't go to parties. Please, yeah. please oh, don't vote. HBO Max also gives me hope. A lot of good shows on HBO Max. So yep. Yep. There's, yeah, there's a lot of things out there to look forward to. Yeah, there's a lot of things that go out there to look forward to. Please, 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 you guys are probably going to be hearing this from me more uh, in the coming weeks. Please go vote. Don't let people convince you that it doesn't matter. It does matter. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, we need to we need to fight for each other and we need to fight for our country. Uh, Mark, uh, thank you again so much for coming on the show. It was great talking with you. Uh, once again, in case people are tuning in late or however that works on a podcast, uh, remind them where they can find you and what you're working on, what you got coming up that they should keep an eye out for. Uh, best place to find me is on Twitter. Uh, and I, my handle is at Manrus, at M-A-N-R-U-S-S. And um, like, as I mentioned before, uh, second season of Second Coming is coming out in December, and the trade for uh, Billionaire Island comes out in November. Great. So please uh, I'll keep on the lookout for that. A lot of comic shops are doing curbside pickup or, you know, wearing masks and like limit, whatever. Point is, there's safe ways to get your comics. Um, so so keep a lookout for those. Uh, as for me, you can find me at DJ Talks Trash. You can follow this show at Only Stupid Answers everywhere that matters. But on Twitter, you're going to want to yank the vows out of stupid. New podcast episodes every Monday. You can um, follow us at, uh, you can help support the show at patreon.com slash Only Stupid Answers. Watch these episodes live, um, get unedited episodes, a bunch of cool stuff like that. Uh, and we've got new uh, reviews for Lovecraft Country and The Boys coming out every week. So stay tuned for all of that. I want to thank everybody that was joining us live, and we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye.